Good morning. I'm going to say what a joy it is to be able to preach God's word to you this Sunday. My name is Chris Reed. I'm a pastoral intern here at the church. Uh, today, uh, we continue our series through the book of Matthew, meeting Jesus in the book of Matthew. And today, we look at a familiar passage, one fascinating interaction between Jesus and disciple Peter. But before we look at this passage, will you pray with me once more? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity uh, to preach your word. Jesus, I pray that you would please help me uh, to communicate your word faithfully and clearly. Jesus, I ask that you would soften our hearts and you would encourage us uh, that you love us, uh, that you came to uh, die for us and raise on the third day. And I ask that you would point us forward in you um, as we answer the question, who do we say that you are? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you known as a leader or a follower? Author S.I. McMillan tells the story of a young woman who desired to go to college, but her heart sank when she read this question on the application, are you a leader? Being honest yet sad, she wrote, no, I am not, and returned the application. Weeks later, the college wrote back, and to her surprise, she read these words, dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We felt it was imperative that we have at least one follower. You are admitted. <laughs> and there you have it, church. The blessings of followership. But I've brought good news this morning. This young woman is not the only one to be blessed as a follower. But every person who believes in the Lord Jesus is blessed because we follow the greatest leader of all. This Jesus pursues us, finds us, draws us near to himself, and then calls us to follow him. Despite each of our past failures, our present struggles, or future sins, Jesus still looks at you and me and says, follow me. Of no merit of our own, but out of his abundant love, Jesus calls us to follow after him. It was that English theologian, John Stott, who wrote, Our Christian life began not with our decision to follow Christ, but with God's call to us to do so. And this is what we have witnessed in Matthew's gospel account. For chapter 4 tells us Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Large crowds are following Jesus after seeing his signs and his wonders. Individuals are compelled to follow Jesus after being met by his mercy, majesty, and authority. But Jesus has called a group of 12, 12 disciples to follow closely after him, to walk with him, learn from him, and be loved by him. These 12 chosen by Jesus are not the religious elite of his day, but fishermen and tax collectors, sons and brothers. There is also a small group of women who follow closely behind Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This core group, Jesus has called on a journey to follow after him. But it begs the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it entail? What does Jesus call you to? What does he call me to in following him? 
In our story this morning, Jesus shows us what it means to follow him. But before we arrive there, we must know the identity of the one we follow. To follow Jesus, we first need a right confession of who Jesus is. We pick up the story in verse 13. Jesus was coming into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Up to this point, Matthew tells us that Jesus had been ministering in Jewish territory. Jesus had been doing the miraculous and preaching the good news of the kingdom. But now he moves away from Galilee, taking his core group 25 miles northward to predominantly Gentile territory, the district of Caesarea Philippi. That important city, that influential territory, known for its paganism and worship of the Greek gods. It is here where God wants to do some of his biggest work. It is here where God wants to reveal who Jesus is. And as Jesus walks into the district with his disciples, he poses to them a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do the crowds confess me to be? Who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? Jesus desires to know what people have gleaned about his identity from what he's done thus far. And this is an appropriate question by Jesus. One, because everyone is looking for the Christ, the Savior. Since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, God's people had dealt with the treacherous blow of sinning against God and all the consequences that had come from it. Despite being loved and cherished by God, God's people rebelled against him and as a result were continually attacked by ungodly enemies, tempted by idolatry, experienced much suffering and loss, and were kicked out, exiled of the land into foreign captivity. And in their midst of their sin, brokenness, and hopelessness, the people wondered, God, will there ever be a day where things will be made right? But God, out of his love, promised that one day he would send the Christ, the Messiah, an anointed deliverer for the people, one who would redeem God's people from sin and misery, rebuild what's been broken down in the land, and renew the people to walk with God again. The Christ would fulfill all the Old Testament promises and hopes of the people. He would inaugurate God's kingdom, establishing his reign and rule upon the earth. The Christ would make it so God could dwell fully with humanity once again, this one would be the Savior, the one who would rescue the righteous from their enemies. And here in Matthew, for God's people, it's a time of political corruption and oppression at the hands of the Romans. There's cultural and ethnic division, societal tension, religious confusion, physical and emotional exhaustion. And everyone is looking, waiting, yearning for the Christ. Who would be the light of hope for God's people? Who would bring about the eschatological age of God's reign where he would save the righteous and triumph over the wicked? Who would come to make all things right? Everyone is yearning for the Christ. But this is also the right question by Jesus because the crowds are having mixed opinions about who Jesus is. Watch the response of the disciples in verse 14. And they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others say Elijah, the one who performed mighty acts in the Old Testament. And others say you're Jeremiah, whose message and mission were rejected by Israel. Or maybe you're one of the prophets. But Jesus responds by asking a deeper question. He said to them, but, but you, who do you say that I am? Who do you believe that I am? What do you confess about me? 
And this is the real question, isn't it? I know everybody in our society has an opinion about who Jesus is, but who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus to you personally? And this question, which was posed to the group, gets answered by the disciple with the biggest personality. The one who likes to share his thoughts whether he is asked or not. Disciple Peter steps forward as the leader and spokesperson and says, Jesus, I know who you are. You are the Christ. Now, what has brought Peter to this point? You see, Peter has had encounters with Jesus. Peter has had small revelations of Jesus' identity. It was Peter who was in the crowd of 5,000 where the only food to eat was a little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish. But he watched Jesus turn it into a banquet and he found out that Jesus is the provider. Peter was in the living room when Jesus came to heal his sick mother and he found out that Jesus is the great physician. Peter was in the boat that was being knocked around by the raging storm, but he heard Jesus tell the wind and the waves to pipe down, and he learned that even nature has to obey Jesus' command. It was Peter who was called by Jesus to walk to him on water, and as he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink, but Jesus caught him up at just the right time, and Peter found out that Jesus is God's beloved son. And Peter, whose heart has been worked on by God, is compelled to give his fullest confession. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, you are God's anointed, the truly prophesied Messiah. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. You are the long-awaited King of Israel, the inaugurator of God's reign, the true Son of David, Emmanuel, God with us. You are the one the prophet spoke of the one our fathers prayed for, the one our grandmothers hoped for. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Savior of the world. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't come to this conclusion by human calculation. Nobody told you this. You didn't get this at seminary, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. By my Father, blessing your heart by the means of grace. And my question for you, church family, has God revealed it to you that Jesus is the Christ? Has he poured grace into your soul to believe? Has he opened your eyes to see that in a time of political and social unrest, societal and moral decay, exhaustion and pain, that there is a Savior, that there is an answer, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he shown you that Jesus is the one our world has been searching for, the Messiah who is the light and hope for humanity, the one who is trustworthy and will be faithful to save us, who will make all things right? Who do you say that he is? Peter is the first person to confess, to address Jesus directly as the Christ. And Jesus blesses Peter because of his confession. He says in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus blesses Peter with the new name, Rock, which stands for a courageous confessor of Jesus' identity. And Jesus promises that on this rock, Jesus will build his church. Through the gospel activity of apostles like Peter, Jesus would gather and strengthen the church. 
he would use Peter to build the church, which we see most evidently in Acts where Peter preaches the gospel to the Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, as well as Peter's letters to the churches. Though not only does Jesus promise that he will build his church on the rock, but that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. No power in hell can defeat, win a victory over the church. Nothing in culture, the spiritual realm, no government, not even widespread persecution against Christians can crush Christ's church. But the church will endure until Christ's return. And this is a great encouragement for you and me. Many things will fall in the years to come, but the church is here to stay. Amen? Jesus will build his church and will be victorious in the end. But along with Jesus making kingdom promises to Peter, he also delegates to Peter authority in that kingdom. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing refers to admitting and shutting off entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus gives Peter authority to usher people into his kingdom. For whoever has the same confession as Peter that Jesus is the Christ will enter into the community of believers. And this is me just using my Chris Reed, you know, spiritual imagination. But I can see Peter at an all-time high in this moment. Nevertheless, Jesus makes it clear that that they are to tell nobody that he is the Christ. Verse 20, then Jesus charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. But Jesus, don't you want others to know that you are the Christ in whom we are to be saved? Well, Jesus knows that at this time there were many different assumptions about who the Christ would be. The title Christ, Messiah, carried connotations of a political liberator, so some thought that Christ would be a political leader who would take the people from under the Roman yoke. Others assumed that Christ would be a revolutionary who would lead a revolt against Rome. Some believed that Christ would be an anointed deliverer or a heavenly son of man. And since Jesus knows this word would spread concerning him, he charges the disciples to tell nobody of his identity. Because it would be a sad day if the world misinterpreted what Christ came to accomplish. And it would be even worse if one of Jesus' own disciples had a misunderstanding of his mission. And this brings us to our next point. Not only does following Jesus require having a right confession of who Christ is, but we also need a right understanding of what Christ came to do. In verse 21, Jesus begins to tell us of this mission from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus begins to explain to his disciples, fellas, this is why I came from heaven to earth. This is why I was sent. He is to suffer many things from, from Israel's foremost leaders, for they will persecute him. But not only that, they will kill him. Though on the third day he would be raised from the grave. This is why Jesus came. This is the Messiah's mission. In order to pay the penalty for our sins, in obedience to the Father, in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. In other words, what Jesus predicts will be no accident, but is divine necessity. This is God's plan of redemption. How he will save you and me from our sins. 
This suffering and death is God's will for Jesus. This was prophesied about Jesus for 700 years before this moment. The prophet Isaiah spoke about Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. However, as Jesus is explaining to his core group that he is bound to suffer and die, there is one disciple who cannot believe it. One disciple who cannot fathom it. One disciple who refuses to accept how the Christ must suffer. And who else could it be? Because for Peter, his assumption of who the Christ would be is oh so different. Can you see Peter? Befuddled, confused, agitated as he listens to Jesus, how he will be tried in a kangaroo court, beaten and flogged wearing a crown of thorns upon his head, and then will be crucified on a shameful criminal's cross. Lord, suffering, death, a cross? What do you mean? You're the Christ. You're supposed to conquer the Romans. You're supposed to do away with my enemies. You're supposed to put Israel back on top. I, I thought I would be on top with you, that we would prosper together. What do you do, church, when, when what you expected Jesus to do for you is not actually what he does? Well, in Peter's case, he rebukes Jesus, verse 22, and, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter begins to rebuke, censor, express strong disapproval of Jesus. This is unheard of in a Jewish master-disciple relationship. This is all the way wrong. Peter gets out of his rightful place as a disciple, which is behind Jesus, and begins telling Jesus what he's going to do. Because when we fail to understand who Jesus is, that he is Christ the Lord, it affects how we relate to him. We begin to tell Jesus how he is supposed to act and how we're going to live, instead of getting behind Jesus and allowing him to set the agenda. And this is exactly what Peter does. Because what's Peter's view of who Christ should be? What's Peter's assumption of Christ's mission? For Peter, the Christ is not one who suffers, but one who conquers. Peter believes the Christ should be a dominant political warrior who will defeat Rome, saving Israel. And he'll keep this view all the way until Jesus' arrest where he cuts off that soldier's ear. For Peter, the Christ should never suffer. Far be it from you, Jesus, I'd be a fool. Never, ever shall you have to go to the cross. Peter's view of Messiahship doesn't match Jesus' view of Messiahship, so Peter rebukes his own Messiah. And Jesus has to shut it down. He has to rebuke Peter in return, but Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Jesus says, Peter, you are out of order. As my mother would say, you have lost your mind. You are out of position. Get behind me. Come after me. Not only is Peter out of position, but he is functioning as an agent of Satan. For back in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness, it was Satan who tempted Jesus to go after his crown without going to the cross. It was Satan who promised Jesus praise without any pain. 
It was Satan who offered Jesus glory without walking up Calvary. And now Satan is using Peter to do the exact same thing, which is why Peter receives the same title. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You are a stumbling block. You are leading me to act contrary to God's will. Peter, who was just called a rock, is now called Satan. Peter, the rock, has now become the stumbling stone. What's the problem here? Why, why is Peter at fault? Well, Jesus tells us, for, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter has a human-centered view of Messiahship. His heart is set on man's interests instead of God's interests. For the things of man are comfort, ease, power, safety, pleasure and dominance without any suffering or resistance. And this is exactly what Peter wants. He wants the crown without the cross. He wants the success without the struggle. He wants Jesus to build his church not knowing that it's going to take Jesus being crucified for there to even be a church. But how often do you and I live like Peter? Many of us, especially myself, want the blessings of Christ without the trials that come with being associated with Christ. We desire to live healthy, blessed, comfortable Christian lives and do everything in our power to avoid the suffering and trials of life, refusing to accept that it may be God's will to mature us through suffering and trials. And the same mindset infiltrates our churches. We often desire to do church with as little resistance or headache as possible. We want Jesus to build his church, not realizing that he builds through suffering. For suffering may not be a sign that God has left our ministry, but that God is at work in our ministry, that God is moving, that he's pushing his gospel forward. But when our minds are fixed solely on what feels good to us, rather than embracing what God may be doing, we end up getting in God's way a stumbling stone. Thus, while Peter had a beautiful confession of who Christ is, he had a grave misunderstanding of what Christ came to accomplish. He had a right confession of Jesus' identity, but failed to grasp Jesus' mission. And now Jesus has to show Peter that his purpose in coming to earth is not to demolish his enemies, but to die for his enemies. This is the type of Christ, the type of Messiah Jesus is. He is a suffering servant, the one who gives his life for you and me. For Messiahship and suffering are intertwined, they're interwoven. This is a right understanding of our Savior, one that is needed in our individual Christian lives and the life of our church, that Jesus is the suffering servant. But if Jesus the Christ came to be a suffering servant, what does that mean for us as his followers? And our last point, to be a follower of Jesus, it, Jesus is to imitate him in his suffering here on earth, to be exalted with him in eternity. The Bible reads, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. After telling his disciples about the nature of his mission, Jesus now explains his call for discipleship. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, to follow behind me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
This is Jesus' call to you and me as his followers to deny ourselves, no longer living for our own self-interest or our own will, but to take up God's will, living for his glory alone. And to take up our cross, surrendering, surrendering our life to God. And follow him, imitating Jesus in the way that he lived. For the death and resurrection of Christ is to be reflected in you and me. As Jesus gave up his own will in obedience to the Father, taking up his cross, we are to do the same. It was the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who wrote, There are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross-bearers on earth. You say, Chris, what does it look like for me to take up my cross? Well, I'll just tell the story of a, of a man who was eager to grow in his Christian life. What he did was he went home and got a blank piece of paper and began to write a list of all the things he'd give up for Christ and then the places he'd go to preach the gospel. When Sunday church came, he came and, and put the piece of paper on the altar. But he felt so empty. So the next week he went home and did the same thing. He added things to the list. And, and then the next week at church he, he put that piece of paper on the altar. But the same feeling occurred. And so he told his pastor. And his pastor said, this is what I want you to do. Get a blank sheet of paper. Write your name on it. And put that on the altar. Friends, this is what it means for you to take up your cross. To write your name over to him. Jesus, I give my life over to you. Whatever you call me to, wherever, whether it involves suffering or not, I am yours. I follow you. And this is the main idea of our passage today. We truly follow Jesus when we imitate him in giving our lives for the gospel. But why, Chris? Why, why is it worth denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and losing our lives for Jesus' sake? Well, Jesus tells us first because of the countercultural truth that whoever desires to save his or her life will end up losing it. But whoever loses their life for Jesus' sake will find it. Whoever tries to hold on to the things of this world and reject the call to follow Jesus will end up losing what they tried so hard to keep. But the one who loses their life, relinquishing it in faith to Jesus, will gain abundant life now and in eternity. If we lose now, we gain later. But if we try to gain the world now, we lose everything. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate, that, that he is worth any price you have to pay to follow him. It was John Calvin, Presbyterians love Calvin, who said, I gave up all for Christ, and what have I found? Everything. Friends, Jesus Christ is more precious. He is better than any pleasure or comfort this world could ever offer. All the riches of this world cannot compare to the blessed riches of finding true life in Jesus. After all, what does it benefit you to gain the whole world, the sum total of earthly riches, but forfeit your soul? What on this earth is worth you holding on to instead of finding your soul satisfied and saved in Jesus? Students, I know it feels good to be liked by everyone, accepted by culture, and not be labeled a creepy Christian, but is that worth your soul? Singles, I know it's tempting to get into a relationship with someone who doesn't love Christ, because at least that's better than being alone on Friday, right? But is that worth your soul? 
Employees, I know prestige and honor in the workplace seems better than receiving shame for your Christian faith. But is that worth your soul? Parents, there is pressure from everywhere to push your children to pursue all the riches this life has to offer and for their minds to be set on being the most successful they can in this world. But if their relationship with the God who created them is suffering, what is that worth? Is it worth your child's soul? The answer is no. Rather, one thing is necessary. One thing is most important and will last forever. May we not be like the rich young ruler who just a few chapters after this, Matthew 19, if you read it, is called by Jesus to go, sell everything he has to the poor, and he will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow Jesus. But in one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible, verse 22 reads, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had many great possessions. The rich young ruler had a personal invitation from Jesus to be one of his twelve, to walk closely with the Savior of the world, to be near to Jesus. But the young man turned Jesus down so he could keep his material wealth. What could be worth more than knowing the Savior of your soul? Jesus says, trust me that, that I have everything you need. But Jesus also asserts that it is worth you and me giving our lives to follow him because he will repay us in the end. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Friends, for those who have trusted in Jesus, we will be saved on the last day. And Jesus will reward us for following him. Trust that every tear you've cried, every cross you've carried, every burden you've had to bear, every friend and family member you've lost on account of the gospel, Jesus will restore it all when he returns. There is a reward awaiting us, awaiting us who finish this race. But will you take up your cross and follow Jesus in the meantime? And as I close, today we learn that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised Messiah who has come as the Savior of the world. Christ's mission, his purpose was to suffer and die on the cross and be raised on the third day in order to save you and me. And he calls you and me to follow him, to imitate him by giving over our own will to God so that we might be raised with him when he returns. For all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and enjoy the, the rest of eternity in perfect peace, joy, love, and satisfaction in the presence of our God. Truly, following Jesus is worth it now and forevermore. Amen. Dear God, I thank you uh, that you are more precious uh, than anything we could have in this life. I ask that you would remind us of that, and if we are tempted to hold on to anything that may inhibit our relationship with you, I ask that you would help us to surrender it. Help us to surrender our lives to you, to follow you, to imitate you, to heed your call to discipleship. Help us and bring us forward. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.